want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number five. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my stretches. Release you. Runway 411 four, four, at five. Clear for takeoff. Seat tied. Altitude is zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Fire and I can't I can't get a hold of him on the radio and so immediately I'm like yeah that's kind of weird maybe he had an electrical system failure or something or radio failure uh, so I walk out of where I'm sitting top three and the building that I'm sitting top three and you can see out across the whole base and then see down the final approach course. And I don't see any, any jet lights. Additionally, I don't hear any jet noise. So I'm kind of going, all right, something, something like doesn't seem right here. Tyra should have landed like 60 seconds after bear. He would have been about a mile and a half to two miles behind him uh, on landing. So that's the voice of Major Andy Chaos Davis, who's the guest on today's episode. He's talking about our buddy uh, and squadron mate Pyro, who was killed on our last deployment. We're going to talk about Chaos's journey through aviation. We're going to talk about the loss of his father. We're going to talk about the F-16. We're going to hit a lot of topics. Given everything that's going on in the world today, I know there is a lot of stress out there. You know, there is... No easy fix. And then this one is definitely going to be something that takes some time to recover from. All I can say is I hope you're taking the necessary precautions to take care of your family, not only health wise, but economic wise. I don't think anyone saw this coming that overnight, literally the United States would shut down. So unprecedented times. And I know that comes with a lot of stress. It hits close to home for me and my family with family members with small businesses that don't know how much longer they can keep the doors open. I know many of you share the same concerns about your financial stability, health, et cetera. But all I can say is, you know, we're going to take some hits. We're not the first to go through something like this. And right now we're not the only ones going through it, but banding together, working together and sticking together is really the best way to get through this. Obviously with social distancing at the current moment, but knowing that you're not the only one going through the hardship. Hopefully there's some comfort in that and that we can band together and, and work through this. I think I'm like most, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, would we have ever shut down the entire United States? Like most never could have imagined it, but here we are. This is a situation we've been dealt. So we got to deal with it and press forward. So that's what we'll do. Before we get into the podcast today, uh, I would like to thank my sponsors, both of which are 
small businesses and veteran owned. And I'm proud to partner with them because again, I think, you know, the small business is a fabric of America. So I would like to thank squadron posters for sponsoring this episode. And not only am I a fan of squadron posters, but I've been a customer of them for about four years now. A few years back when I was in the 77 fighter squadron, a member of our squadron worked with the squadron posters design team and created a custom poster for our squadron. After seeing it, I absolutely ordered that one, but I also went and ordered all of my previous units as well. Squadron posters is a great way to capture your memories and showcases the places you've traveled, where you've lived, and some of the amazing things you've accomplished. Check out squadronposters.com and their truly unique artwork. Let Squadron Posters custom design team help you share your journey today. You can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your order of $59 or more. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this episode. Wingman Watches is a veteran-owned company, and all their timepieces are built right here in the United States. If your organization, your team, your military unit, police, fire department, emergency room, if your organization is looking to build a custom watch, wingmanwatch.com is the place to go to get your order started today. You're going to get an incredible timepiece at the fraction of the cost of other custom watches Again, swing over to wingmanwatch.com. You can mention my name to receive a discount on your custom watch order or use the code RAIN10 to get 10% off a watch that is currently sold on their site. And last admin item before we get rolling into the podcast today, I would like to thank my two new Patreon supporters, Lee Piney and Owen Hewitt, who join at the director of ops level. Thanks for the support. And I realize what I'm going to say is insignificant given the scheme of the scale rather of what's going on today. But if you're looking for additional content, uh, all the question and answer sessions that I have uh, generated with the guest, all those are up there for anyone to listen to. So if you're bored and looking for something to do, again, more content up there at patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. Okay, that's enough uh, admin for today. Now to get into the episode with Major Andy Chaos Davis. I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're ready, we'll get rolling into this. Yeah, man, I'm ready. Cool. Well, I'm excited. I got my good buddy, Chaos Davis, who is an F-16 weapons instructor out at Nellis. Join me on the podcast today. Chaos, thanks for uh, calling in, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, Rain, absolutely, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, uh, to sit down and uh, chat with you for a bit. Yeah, dude. So um, people don't know this, but I know this. Like you pretty much have graduated number one in everything you've done thus far in the Air Force. And now you're teaching the instructors how to teach out of the weapons school. Can you tell me a little about what WIC is, what it means to be there and kind of what it takes to get to that point in your career? Yeah, sure. Uh, WIC is, WIC is the uh, weapon, it stands for weapons instructor course. And, and what it is, is it's the United States Air Force uh, weapons school. And a lot of people like to compare it to, to the Navy Top Gun school. And while it, it, it has some, uh, some similarities to Navy Top Gun. It's quite a bit different in, in that we focus a lot of our time at the, at the weapons school, teaching guys how to problem solve and mission plan very, very large force-on-force uh, -force, uh, battles, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Would you say, I mean, is, is Top Gun more of the like, tactical sortie, like going out there and doing basic fighter maneuvers, doing BFM, dogfighting, kind of left-hand, right-hand type skills? Yeah, exactly. Top Gun is Top Gun is more of your uh, your basic uh, air to air type kills. I think they do a little bit of air to ground stuff as well. And 
we certainly do that at the weapon school as well. You know, we take guys that are already very, very good at flying their specific airplane for, you know, for me, it's the F-16. We take guys that are already very, very good at flying the F-16 and make them tactical experts in the F-16. So with the in-state goal of those guys going back to whatever units they're going to out in the combat air force, and those guys are the chief instructor pilots in their squadron, and they are leading 30 to 40 to 50 uh, individuals, uh, pilots, fighter pilots in that squadron uh, as the chief instructor. Yeah. So guys who are going to weapons school are already the best of the best, like in their squadron, they've been selected to go there. But when they show up to weapons school, what does the next six months of their life look like? What's a day in the life of a, a wick, a wug look like? <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of guys show up and they've kind of been prepped before they show up to weapons school. And what they hear prior to showing up is, Buckle down. It is going to be a very difficult five and a half months. You are not going to have much time for yourself. You're probably going to have some Saturdays to yourself, and that's about it. A typical day in the life of a, of a, of a student at weapons school is uh, 12 to 16-hour days. And uh, within that 12 to 16 hours, you could either be mission planning for a uh, mission the following day where you do 12 hours of very detailed mission planning, and then roll right into the next day after 12 hours of uh, 12 hours of rest overnight. Roll right into the next day of actually going to brief that mission, going to execute that mission, and then debriefing that mission for six to eight hours after landing. So it's very, very detailed, very in-depth uh, with everything we do at Weapon School. Very long days, uh, and really the only chance that the, that the students have to catch up on uh, you know, sleep and rest is, is Saturday and a little bit of Sunday before they head into work and continue studying. So very, uh, very challenging course. It's, uh, I remember when I graduated after five and a half months, uh, and I was tapped out, like I was tapped out mentally. I was tapped out emotionally and I was tapped out physically. I was just like at the end of my rope and so ready to be done and get back to my wife and, uh, we took a trip to Italy after uh, and and hung out there for, for a week or so and just decompressed, and, and it was awesome. What gives you the drive to push through stressful situations to continually operate at a very high tempo? And that's a prime example to talk about is going through weapons school. It's a very demanding five and a half months of your life. What do you, what do you think drives most people? Is it just a inner, inner fire there that they want to be the best and get things done or what, what is it? I think you can probably boil it down to two overarching concepts. And, and the first one is just the desire to be excellent in whatever you have chosen as the thing that you do. And so for a fighter pilot, fighter pilots, generally speaking, type A personalities want to be really, really good at everything that they do. Addition, in, in addition to that, Fighter pilots generally want to be respected by their peers. And in order to be respected by a fighter pilot peer, you have to be seen by that peer as, as being very, very good at what you do. So that's very, very good at studying and learning information and then being able to go apply that information in split-second decisions when you're actually flying the jet. The other aspect that I think is really, uh, really pushes at least me, uh, gives me that drive is the team aspect. And when I walk into work every day, 
I'm surrounded by individuals that are the cream of the crop, like the best at what they do. And these guys could be doing anything that they want. They're extremely smart. They're extremely capable. They're extremely determined. These guys could be doing uh, whatever they want out in the civilian sector, whatever they want in the military, but they've chosen to be fighter pilots and they've risen to the top. And so walking into an organization every day and working with those individuals, as you surround yourself with those individuals, as is commonly said, like you are who you choose to hang out with. And when you surround yourself with those individuals, it just makes you better and makes you want to be better being around people who are better than you. Dude, I think that's spot on. And I don't know, I mean, we grew up around it and that was part of the culture, you know, I mean, as, as a fighter pilot culture of always wanting to be the best and always wanting the respect of your peers, which requires you to be the best and to, to, to work hard. How do you think, again, do you think that is just a culture thing? Because I think that is applicable to a lot of people from other organizations that want success. Like competition is going to be a facet of every, every high performing team, whether it be in business, uh, sports, whatever it might be. And managing that dynamic and not letting, I guess, the competition crush the teamwork and making the team stronger um, is not always a given. What do you, how do you think we get to that point that we're able to do that? You know, I, I agree with you that competition is extremely important within an organization. I, I think that when there's not competition, that it tends to breed complacency and, and stagnation within the organization. Uh, I, I think the way that you get around that is you, as, as an organizational leader, uh, to, to boil it down to the Air Force, you know, a fighter squadron commander or an operations group commander has to has to kind of empower or uh, inform the guys that are under them that the competitive environment exists for the betterment of the entire team as a whole. And when you, when when a in my opinion, when a, when an organizational leader does that he kind of starts to get some buy-in from all the guys that are working for him, all the guys and gals that are working for him. And they're going, okay, cool. I'm already competitive. My squadron commander, my leader is telling me that I need to be more competitive and, and, and try to try to be the best in the organization at, at what I do. And he's telling me to do all that because it will make the overall team better. And, uh, and I'm a part of that team and I want to make that team better so that I can, I can feel like I am something I am part of something that is bigger than myself. That is, that is, a that is, you know, a high, a high operating level uh, team. So with that being said, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely does. And I think, you know, the, the threat here, right. Is you have a lot of egos of people wanting to be the best. There's competition, but at the weapon school specifically, there's a mantra, right. That you guys use. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, that mantra is hum uh, humble, approachable, credible. And, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head there or alluded to it in that in order to be the best at what you do, you cannot be beyond reproach. You cannot be, you cannot be so full of yourself and so arrogant or so confident that nobody can come to you and say, hey, chaos or hey, rain. I really didn't like the way that you did that. I think there's a better way to do that. Or, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, Chaos, you, you deliberately broke a rule or a regulation that is written for the safety of the pilots uh, in the squadron. You deliberately broke that rule, 
uh, we need to talk about it. We need to fix it for uh, for next time. That's what makes a fighter squadron and a, and a really high high level organization uh, like the Weapons School work so well is that we really embrace that first tenet of the Weapons School uh, mantra, and that's being humble. If when I walk into work every day, like I said, I'm surrounded by these amazing individuals. And if I can't learn from them and if I can't take criticism from them and get better from it, then I don't belong in that organization and I don't belong in a high performance team. Yeah, I think it is such a good mantra and it is applicable to so many aspects of life. Um, and like you said, high functioning teams, they incorporate that in some way, somehow. Otherwise they wouldn't function or they're going to, they're going to fail at some point uh, because egos are going to get in the way and they're going to stop improving and stop performing. So I love it. Um, I think it's a, it's an integral part of how people should uh, operate in everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So getting to weapons school, you had uh, some time in Korea, some time flying uh, block fifties and then uh, a deployment in there too, right? We deployed together Operation Inherent Resolve. I want to talk a little bit about that. I know a lot of good stuff that comes out of that uh, particular deployment uh, for both of us, but you got one particular sortie you kind of want to talk about, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, I had a, I, you know, I, I flew about 50, 50 missions when I was over there. And some of them, as you, as you probably remember, uh, are, were, were pretty boring. And some of them were just incredibly, uh, Incredible in that they were just action-packed uh, from start to finish. Most of the missions that we flew over there were anywhere from six to nine hours. So uh, if you've ever seen an F-16 cockpit for the listeners out there, an F-16 cockpit is by no stretch of the imagination big. So imagine sitting down in a cockpit for you're airborne for eight-ish hours. You're on the ground an hour before you take off. And then you're on the ground uh, for about 20 minutes after you land prior to getting out of the jet. So you sit in the jet for nine, 10 hours. So that's already a challenging, uh, challenging thing that to, to sit in a very small space and operate, keep your brain functioning at a very high level, sitting in that one seat for, uh, for that long. Uh, but <clears throat> like I said, I had lots of really, really cool missions out there. One of the coolest missions that I did and one of the, one of the missions that really made me proud to be part of the 77th fighter squadron uh, down there was a mission that I did with a guy named uh, Menace McCord. And that mission that day, uh, we were going to kind of central Iraq uh, to basically just orbit overhead of some friendlies and uh, wait for a potential tasking to come up. Well, in route to central Iraq, we got a call from the command and control center, and they told us that they had a, a, a tick, uh, which stands for troops in contact up in the northern portion of Iraq. So they rerouted a KC-135 to us to, to take us up to northern Iraq, which was about a 20 to 25-minute uh, drive to get up there. As we were on our way up there, me and Menace are on the tanker. We fill up on gas uh, to the best, uh, you know, we top off top off on gas and then we get off the tanker and we plug it in afterburner and we go 0.98 mocks to get uh, to get to these guys. Uh, once we uh, once we kind of get there, we're getting in within about 10 or 15 minutes of the uh, of the area. We start talking to the JTAC, who is uh, you know who's the guy on the ground that is 
kind of has overall situational awareness of the ground picture, but is also able to communicate that to air crew as well as call and airstrikes from air crew. So he's kind of our conduit for or our liaison to actually be able to employ weapons close to friendly forces, kill the enemy without doing any harm to friendly forces. So we're getting in contact with him on our way up to uh, on our way up to this tick. And we get to this tick and he immediately has two different places where he wants me and Menace to start looking, which is a little bit non-standard uh, for us. Generally speaking, an F-16 two-ship likes to both have their sensors in the same spot so that we can kind of bounce ideas off of each other. And when I say sensors, I'm talking uh, a TV mode of a, of a targeting pod. So we're up in the air looking through the targeting pod and we're watching buildings, people walking in and out of buildings, people getting in and out of cars, uh, things like that. Very high detail uh, on, on the targeting pod. So he divides our sensors up. I'm looking in one area. Menace is looking in another area about a mile and a half off. And these guys on the ground are, are we can see them getting shot at uh, pretty heavily by the enemy from multiple, multiple different directions. So, you know, as soon as you check in and you start seeing the good guys on the ground being shot at by the enemy, they're on the back of your neck stands up and you're, you, you just become like, doesn't matter how long you've been in the jet, doesn't matter how tired you are of sitting in that airplane, uh, you, your brain goes to a different level when you see friendly forces getting shot at. And there is like fatigue is gone. Uh, and it's incredible. Your brain just starts operating on, on nine out of eight cylinders. Pretty cool, pretty cool experience. So we check in, uh, we start looking at these different taskings. And as soon as we look at these taskings, the JTAC is already wanting some bombs on both of these different taskings. The, the first of these taskings is a, I think it's the one that Menace is looking at, happens to be a, like, a, like a tunnel that's got a bridge over it. And this tunnel is like probably 50 to 100 yards long. And there's a bunch of enemy forces. There's a bunch of ISIS forces inside of this tunnel. So me and Menace can't actually see these guys. We just know based on the muzzle flashes and the heat that's coming out from this, uh, from this tunnel that there's bad guys inside of there, and those bad guys are shooting, are shooting our bros down on the ground. So the JTAC, JTAC gets, the, gets the attack approved from the ground force commander, but the ground force commander doesn't want the bridge to be blown up. He just wants the enemy inside of the tunnel to, to be neutralized. So I'm like, all right, that kind of throws a wrench in the game plan. We can't just like drop a bomb through the bridge and blow up the bridge and blow up the guys or neutralize guys that are, that are underneath the bridge. So me and Anna start talking back and forth between, uh, between our two jets. And, and we, we come up with the idea. I think it was Menace's idea. Actually, it was an incredible idea. He's like, how about we do this? How about we put a bomb on each side of the tunnel and have those bombs impact simultaneously so that the overpressure from the bombs kind of goes down the tunnel and hope, hopefully we achieve the weapons, uh, weapons effects uh, and neutralizing all the, uh, all the ISIS fighters in there. So I'm like, that's a great idea. I wish I would have come up with that uh, myself, but uh, here we go. Let's, uh, let's get it done. We, uh, we, we went for the attack. We uh, dropped the bombs. I think it was one bomb coming off of my jet, one bomb coming off of Menace's jet. The bombs hit almost simultaneously, and uh, the fire uh, the fire stopped out of uh, out of that tunnel. So that was like the 
that was this all happens within like the first like five to ten minutes that me and Menace are on station. So super quick in like we show up on station, there's friendlies getting shot at, and we're putting bombs down almost uh, almost immediately. Uh, so that was kind of the first part of uh, of this day, and we ended up being overhead for about another two to three hours. Uh, and uh, at this point, we're kind of running 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 kind of low on gas. So you know we've got a tanker that's about forty miles away from where we are, and we need to start going to that tanker to get gas, or we're going to run out of gas. We're going to have to go land somewhere. So. The first thing that I do is I leave Menace on station and I go off to the tanker and I go get gas. So to transit to the tanker, which is 40 miles away, that takes about five minutes to get to the tanker. takes me about eight to 10 minutes to get gas and it takes me about five minutes to get back. So that's 20 minutes that Menace is there overhead doing everything on his own. And to put that into perspective for everyone, Menace at the time, he is, he is my number two. I'm the flight lead. He's the wingman. And so he is a fairly young guy in the F-16. He's probably got 150 to 200 hours in the F-16. So very, very young guy, very extremely sharp guy. Uh, but, you know, imagine having only 150 hours in a super high-performance aircraft. And now you're the guy that is talking to the JTAC on the ground and making decisions and tracking tracking friendly forces, tracking enemy fighters on the ground. You're doing it all while your flight lead, who's more experienced, is off to the tanker getting gas so that he can come back and, and kind of tag out with you. So during that during that time when I was over at the tanker getting gas, Menace drops the drops the weapon uh that's that's cleared by the JTAC and uh you know does does uh does some more good work and, and neutralizes some more ISIS fighters that are that are uh, shooting up our, our bros on the ground. So I got back from the tanker and I'd kind of been listening to it all on the radio as I was at the tanker 40 miles away. And I could kind of hear what was going on between the JTAC and Menace. But I just remember like flying back and still the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because we're in the middle of this thing and there's guys on the ground getting shot at. And I was just so proud of Menace and that like, Dude has 150 hours in, in the F-16. He's been flying it for like a year and a half or two years maximum. And here he is like doing everything on his own and doing it in accordance with the regulations and saving the guys on the ground. Just super cool to, to, to watch and hear. Yeah, Chaos, that's, uh, you know, it's a testament to like the training, the, the instructor core, everything that goes into it because like the guys on the ground no, no different, right? They don't, they know there's a dash one and a dash two up there, but they don't know the qualifications between the different jets. And that one guy might be brand new on his first combat sortie, or this might be his 500th combat sortie. Like they just don't know, but the expectation is there when, when you walk out the door, you gotta be ready to do business. So as a flight lead, I mean, again, that's a, everything you just described there is just like constant adrenaline you know, the entire sortie and probably until you get back after a couple hours, what piece of it, of that sortie, do you think was like the most challenging for you as a flight lead or something, the biggest takeaway you had from it? So the biggest, the biggest challenge for me or the biggest takeaway for me was when that sortie occurred, we had only been down range for a month, a month and a half at that point. And so we were kind of new downrange. It was my first deployment. I was kind of getting my feet under me. I was kind of figuring everything out. 
Uh, and, you know, as a leader, you, the tendency as a leader is to want to be kind of in everybody's chili and kind of be, uh, kind of be there micromanaging everything. And I think that, that I remember coming home that night and laying in my bed or sitting in my room and, and waiting to, waiting to go to fall asleep. And I just remember thinking like, man, I really wanted to be in control of that situation. But that 20 minutes that I kind of stepped away from the situation, I was still monitoring it, but I was monitoring it from afar. And I didn't really have an immediate impact in the situation. I stepped away from the situation and I allowed Menace to take care of it. Like I said, I monitored him, but I wasn't micromanaging. I wasn't telling him what to do. I was just letting him do it. And so that's something that kind of struck me as, a learning point from this mission is and something that I could carry through the rest of the deployment and in other aspects of life in terms of, uh, of leadership is being able to relinquish control and delegate authority and delegate control down to, down to guys that you are leading. Now it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you can just ignore what they're doing and, uh, and, and, and turn a blind eye to it. You got to still have a little bit of oversight and a little bit of monitoring, but, uh, I think it's something that's super important. Yeah. That's what I definitely, uh, definitely took away from it. Yeah. I think, you know, coming from a community of all type A people for the most part, like we always want to control and know, like we want the outcome, we want success. Right. And we all have a vision of how that success or how we're going to get to that point. One of the toughest things to learn is realizing that, you know, there are other people that bring qualities to the table that, you know, for instance, I think a prime example where you said like, you know, menace piping up with the option of dropping two bombs on either side of the tunnel. Like what a great example of leadership of like listening to that and realizing, Hey, that is a good idea. And let's go forth and execute it. Guys who figure that out earlier rather than later, I think are the most successful, which is a testament. I mean, again, of how well you've done in your career and, you know, I go back to it. Like it's, it's applicable in so many different facets of life. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. So, um, kind of have shift gears here from the deployment. Again, we could go on and on, uh, I think about deployment stories. Cause there's definitely a few from there. Maybe we'll do another episode at some point, but, um, getting to aviation, what got your interest in, in flying in the first place? Oh man, uh, I, I think when I was born in in '87, that it, I didn't have an option that I was going to be a pilot because there are pictures of me from I don't know how old I was, but I was definitely yes less than a year old, and I'm like getting in an airplane, going flying with my dad, <laughs> or awesome. going flying with my uncle. Yeah, so from the day that I was born, I was just surrounded by aviation. Uh, I'm a fourth generation aviator. Uh, there's been 18 pilots in my family from, uh, you know, to include my mom and my mom to my dad's side of the family. Uh, and, and I classify pilots as if you've soloed an airplane, then, then you, then you fit that bill and, and you're, you know, you're blessed as you're a Davis pilot. So that's awesome. uh, super cool, super cool that, uh, you know, I can't, I, I, I come from a family that, that, uh, is just full of, full of aviators and, and full of aviation. So I grew up around, I grew up around my dad who was, who was an F-16 pilot. He was also an F-4 pilot and also a KC-135 pilot for a, uh, for a short time in, uh, in the Air National Guard. 
And I just remember thinking when I was a little kid, you know, he would come home and he would show me the jeezles on his arms, which for those who don't know are pop capillaries in your arms and your legs from pulling a lot of G's in a, uh, in a fighter aircraft. He would show me his jeezles and he would tell me about how cool his sortie was that day flying BFM or, you know, doing basic surface attack, uh, you know, he would, he, and, and I could always tell that he was just, and I was only like six or seven at the time, but I could tell that he was like supremely satisfied with, with what he did for a living. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And then to, to further that, I remember my mom would take us out, take us kids out to the McConnell Air Force Base where he was flying F-16s. And, you know, we'd go out there in the afternoon and watch him land or we'd watch him take off. We'd go out on the flight line and watch it all happen. And like I just have memories in my mind from when I'm six to seven years old of, of these like super cool fighter jets flying over. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about how the world works, but I know that I want to, I want to do that. That looks really cool. You know, I'm seven years old. There's nothing cooler than a fighter jet flying by at, at a couple hundred feet going 500 knots. Super cool. Whole so, bunch of freedom. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I was super blessed to grow up in a family that, that, uh, that wasn't, was involved in aviation. Uh, so, so heavily, my dad was, uh, my dad left the air force, uh, in 1994 and went and flew for federal express, uh, now FedEx, uh, you know, a thing or two about FedEx yourself now rain. And yeah, that's right. uh, he went on to, uh, went on to a, a really good career with, uh, with FedEx and, uh, Throughout my high school, my dad, you know, afforded me the opportunity to to learn how to fly, to get my private pilot's license, to learn to fly gliders, to get my private glider license. Which to this day, I was just, I am just so thankful that I had those opportunities to learn how to fly at such a young age. I mean, I could I, I was flying gliders. I could solo a glider before I could legally drive a car in the state of Kansas. I mean, it was crazy. Like my friends would, would ask me like, Hey, what are you doing today, Andy? And I'd say, I'm going fly. And you know, we're 14, 15 years old. And they're like, well, who are you going fly with? And I'm, I'm going alone. Yeah. And they're like, you know, they're just like shocked. But, that's incredible. You know, that's just, that's just like how I grew up. And, and so it, you know, it was normal, normal to me then. Looking back on it now, I kind of realize how how lucky and how fortunate I, I was to grow up around that. Yeah, that really is something. Uh, yeah, I learned at a young age, and again, it was um, right place, right time, and then good parents and good neighbors who kind of took me under the wing to let me fly early in high school, and yeah, you know, I was like hooked at that point. Um, I mean, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, what my life would be without uh, without flying, you know, just be a, a whole other world, I suppose. Yeah, same, completely different. So, um, from there, you just kind of had the hook there, and then what made you? What kind of like you knew? Hey, I want to go in the Air Force. I want to fly fighters. Is that what the next yeah, viable you know, path? I knew I wanted to. I knew I wanted to fly from a young age. I, I I knew that I probably wanted to fly fighters, although I didn't really know what it meant. And then. I remember the events of September 11, 2011. I was actually homesick from school. I'm, I'm laying in my bed. My mom comes downstairs and she says, Andy, you got to get up and come see this. And, you know, I'm not feeling all that well, but 
the tone of her voice indicates that like something pretty serious is happening. I'm 14 at the time. I get up, uh, I go look at the TV and I see these planes that just crashed into the World Trade Center. And I'm like watching on TV, these, these people who are burning alive, jumping out of these buildings. And it was at like that moment in time where I kind of found my purpose in life. And I, I, I said to myself, all right, I knew that I wanted to fly already. Uh, I knew that I wanted to fly fighters and now I know why I want to fly fighters because I don't want to ever see that happen to, to my people ever again. So that was kind of my resolve to, uh, you know, to pursue, uh, military aviation. And so I pursued an appointment to the United States Air Force Academy and was super lucky and, and super fortunate to be given an appointment to the, to the Air Force Academy. And I started the Air Force Academy when I was, uh, about three weeks after I graduated from high school uh, in mid to late June of 2005. I uh, went, to, went to the Air Force Academy for four years. Uh, it's a four-year institution that serves as college as well as a commissioning source into the uh, Air Force. When I went into the Air Force Academy, I had bad eyes. Uh, I had to wear glasses and contacts. My eyes were 2,400. And at the time, the only place where the Air Force would qualify you to fly Air Force airplanes after you had had uh, eye corrective corrective eye surgery was at the Air Force Academy. So I got a I got a surgery there called PRK, which is kind of generation before LASIK. I think is the best way to think of it. Uh, which which took my eyes from 2400 to 2010. So super lucky to have to have been able to, to get that, and then I was qualified to fly and went to pilot training after my graduation from uh, from the academy down in Columbus, Mississippi, uh, did well enough in T-6s to, to get selected to go fly T-38 and then trained in T-38 and then was, uh, was, was lucky enough to get the F-16 out of, uh, out of pilot training. So that's kind of my story. Like that's my story of, of how I got into aviation and then my story of why I chose to go into military service and, and kind of the reason behind that. Yeah, I think you and I uh, similar paths as far as being affected by September 11th and you know being interested in aviation and then having that event happen was a catalyst to knowing, hey, I want to I want to serve my country and if I can fly and serve, like that's a a win win. Your uh, time at the Air Force Academy, you did you did have some family uh, tragedy occur while you were there, right? Can you talk a little yeah, bit about I that? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. Super. Uh, terrible situation. Uh, I was a, I was a senior at the Air Force Academy. I'm in my last semester at the Air Force Academy. So I don't want to say I'm like coasting to the finish line, but you know, I'm in, I'm in, I'm kind of in coast mode, just like everybody is at that point. You're kind of tapped out due to the last three and a half years of really rigorous academics. Uh, so it's January 31st. I'm on the way up to the mountains uh, to go skiing for the day with a couple of buddies and we're in the car. I, I call my dad on the way up there. My dad has just gotten back from a FedEx trip and he owns a small airplane in, uh, in Memphis and he's headed out to, to the airport. One to do some work around the hangar, do some work on the airplane. He's going to go fly the airplane. And then also my little brother who's four years younger than me is going to, is going to come out and fly with him. Uh, later. So, uh, we go up, I, I, I'm talking to my dad and, you know, he tells me kind of his plans for the day. And I'm like, cool. That sounds awesome. Wish I was there. Wish I could go flying with you, but I'm going skiing. 
And he's super jealous of me because I'm going skiing. He loves to snowboard. Uh, and so anyway, we finished that conversation two, three hours later. I'm on a ski lift at uh, Copper Mountain and I'm riding up the ski lift there. I'm about five minutes on the ski lift and my phone rings and I get out my phone, answer it. My brother calling and I'm like, Hey Duke, what's up, man? How's it going? I'm on a ski lift. And I could tell instantly by the tone of his tone, tone of his voice that something was wrong. He was like, "Dude, uh, dude, dad, dad, dad's been in a crash. Uh, dad's been in an airplane crash. I don't have any more information." And so I'm stuck on this ski lift now. Fortunately, I'm with a couple of my friends, uh, but we still have like 10 minutes left to go to the top. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of speechless. I'm like, I don't know what to say right now. I mean, what do you mean he's been in a crash? Was it? I mean, was it FedEx plane? Was it his plane? Like, what's going on? And Duke doesn't really have a whole lot of information. That's my brother, uh, Duke. And, you know, so we hang up the phone. I almost immediately call my dad's best friend, a guy named Steve Dyers, who uh, is a FedEx pilot with my dad. And Steve has a Steve has a hangar at the same airport as my dad. And they're they're essentially right next to uh, right next to each other. So. Steve saw him that morning. Uh, I call Steve and I'm like, what is going on? I just heard from Duke that, that, that my dad was in a crash. And he, you know, he doesn't really know any information either. So the way that all of this came about was my brother was at the hangar waiting for my dad to come back from flying so that my brother could take his at the time girlfriend for, uh, for a flight. <clears throat> so my brother's waiting at the hangar. He waits like 30 minutes after my dad said he would be back and obviously doesn't show up, uh, waits another 30 minutes. And so now he's like an hour past when my dad should show up, you know, he's calling his phone, no answer. Uh, and then a couple of, a uh, couple of guys drive up to the hangar and they, you know, they kind of know my dad, they kind of know Duke and, and they go, Duke, uh, your dad's been in a crash. We don't have any further information at this point, but your dad's been in a crash. And so, you know, that's when my brother picked up the phone and, uh, and called me. So, uh, anyway, to finish my side of the story, I get to the top of the mountain. I ride the ski lift back down. Cause like, I'm in no shape to snowboard right now. I'm super, I'm just like, you know, I'm like emotionally just completely tapped out. Oh. Ride the ski lift down. I call my mom when I get down to the bottom of the ski lift and I'm like, mom, what's going on? She's crying. And she's like, I just found out your dad, your dad passed away. Your dad, oh. uh, your dad died in an airplane crash. And so terrible, terrible news. Man. So it was, uh, you know, that was a really tough pill to swallow being that, you know, it was, it was my senior year at the Air Force Academy. I had like work, almost my entire life to become a fighter pilot. And I was at the point in my career where I knew that I, that I at least had a pilot slot uh, after I graduated from the Academy and I was going to going to air force pilot training. And so kind of hard to wrap my mind around the fact that like my dad, one of my best friends and like one of my greatest mentors in, in, in aviation was like not going to be there for me to be able to like share that experience with and, and bounce ideas off of and learn from as I went through uh, pod training. So, uh, and, you know, and additionally, my brother, you know, like I said, four years younger than me, he was a pilot as well. And, you know, kind of figuring out what he wanted to do. And my dad was a, my dad was an excellent mentor for, for him as well. And so super challenging, probably more so challenging for my little brother than it was for me, because 
I at least kind of had a path set out for me already because I kind of knew at that point that I was going to pilot training. I knew that I was going to be an Air Force pilot, but, you know, my little brother Duke, he's a senior in high school. He doesn't know exactly what he's going to do. And he, you know, he really needs that, that, that mentor and his dad to, to, to help him uh, along the way. So super difficult situation for, for uh, my whole family, but especially my little brother. Man, chaos. I can't even imagine. I could just, I get goosebumps hearing that story. Um, what, was there anything that you did that made it, uh, like help ease the pain or kind of press forward? Because again, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, you're going to go pursue a career in aviation. Your dad just passes away in an accident. Like that's kind of tough to get out of bed in the morning and go fly planes. I would think. Yeah. Uh, so the best way for me and the best way for me and my brother actually to get over it was we went flying. We went flying. We were back in Memphis for, for all the services and whatnot. We were there for about a week with my mom and uh, about the fourth or fifth day we were there. I think it was the day after his services or maybe two days after, uh, we went out and flew me and my brother just went out and flew a Piper J three cub. And we just like went and goofed around and, we didn't talk to anybody on the radio. You know, we were, we were way out east of, uh, east of Memphis, outside of controlled airspace. Uh, we're, you know, that, that's how, that's how me and my brother and, you know, a lot of people in, in my family, that's kind of how we decompress is, is we, we like feel at home when we're flying airplanes and we're, when we're airborne. And so that's how we, that's how we coped with it. And, you know, to this day, I still, I still kind of cope with it. Uh, you know, doing the same, doing the same thing. Every time I go flying, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about him and I'm thinking about all the stuff that he, that he taught me. And I know that he's on my wing flying with me and, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, that's, that's how we cope with it. So, you know, as, as we were talking about before we, uh, before we went live here, I'm flying tonight, flying F-16 tonight, doing an instructional mission here at the weapons school with, uh, with one of our students and, we're going out to do some, some training bomb, uh, bomb runs with, uh, CB 103, which is a super cool weapon. And, you know, all my dad will be on my wing tonight and then probably on the way home, the sun will be about setting on my way home. I'm sure it'll be super pretty because it's a really nice day here in Las Vegas. And I'll probably have a moment like on the, on the RTB on the return base where I just like think about all the things that he taught me and, and think about how lucky I am and we are to get to do what we do. So chaos. Kind of along, along those lines, you and I both went through, uh, I would say an unpleasant experience when we were downrange together. We lost a good friend of ours and squatter mate, uh, Captain Will Pyro Du Bois, um, in an accident. And I think it, it, this kind of lends to what you're talking about with your dad, uh, of having to kind of overcome, you know, a significant loss and get back, get back to doing it. Um, you were stationed with Pyro kind of from the, very early days in your career, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Pyro? Yeah, I was, uh, I was stationed with Pyro in Korea. He was in our, uh, in our kind of our rival squadron, actually at uh, Kunsan Air Base, uh, South Korea. I was a GVAT in the 80th fighter squadron and he was a Panton in the 35th fighter squadron. And, uh, so we, Pyro and I spent, uh, spent about a year and a half together in Korea. Uh, and we were both, uh, very young guys in, uh, in the F-16 at that time. So we kind of grew up studying and learning to fly the F-16 together. We went through the flight lead upgrade, uh, basically at the same time together. Uh, and 
so we, we became, uh, we became pretty good friends out in, uh, out in South Korea. And then, you know, I showed up to Shaw on the 77th fighter squadron. You'd been there for about a year, same with Pyro, uh, about that time frame. And I remember meeting him for the first time, you know, a guy who's just like full life and energy and like the instant, uh, center of the circle and kind of guiding the squadron morale and the energy of it. Um, and then we're like off to the races just shortly after I get there, going to fight ISIS. Um, and you know, with Pyro, I remember specifically the night, uh, he was killed and I know you do as well. And be, I want to hear your side. I'll kind of say what, what I saw. I remember I was a night guy and, um, I was walking back from the bathroom, like at three o'clock in the morning, getting ready to go to sleep or go to call the wife and two jets showed up over at high key. So for those who don't know, high key is a point over the field where if we have any kind of issues, if you have an engine related issue, that's where you're trying to get to in order to glide the plane, worst case scenario, engine out to landing. But we also go to high key as a way to kind of get out of the way and, and sort whatever issue we have going on. So I remember walking back from the bathroom and two jets showed up at high key and just kind of thought to myself, Oh, they got an issue because they were just circling, so they're burning down gas. Um, and I went and called Anna, and then about you know, 30, 40 minutes later, the phone cut off. Um, and that was them cutting all this all the all this all the communications to the base because an accident had happened and they wanted to go to the figure out what had happened and notify who needed to be notified. Were you you were you flying that night or were you top three? What were you doing? Yeah, I was actually sitting top three that night. And, you know, for, for those who don't know, the top three is, is, uh, it's, it's operations supervisor. So you're kind of a senior guy in the squadron and you're kind of overseeing the operations, uh, all the flying operations and working with maintenance and also working with the pilots airborne. So yeah, I was sitting top three that night and I showed up to my top three shift. It was about midnight when I showed up and Pyro and his wingman bear were getting ready to step uh, to go up to, I think they were going to Northern Syria to fly like a five or six hour mission in, in Northern Syria. So I gave them a, I uh, gave them a step brief, which included, you know, the weather and uh, their, their jet, the, their tail members that they were going to, and, you know, some other important information they needed to know. And then uh, that was about one, one thirty AM probably. And then they stepped, went to their jets and, uh, and cranked up and, uh, and got going. So, uh, they eventually took off no problems on the ground, but as soon as they took off there, the number two guy, Pyro's wingman, uh, he had a jet that I believe that I believe it was the landing gear would not come up. It was definitely a problem with the landing gear. And I, I'm pretty sure that it was the landing gear would not, would not raise after takeoff. So that's obviously a pretty big deal when you're flying in a, in a, in a jet that's uh, got retractable gear, you need, you kind of need the landing gear to come up before uh, you can continue on the mission. So, so they go up to, you know, as you were kind of just talking to, they, they, they went to high key and they're trying to figure out the problem. They're running through the checklist to, to get the gear up uh, or just keep it down and, and come back to base and land. So while this is happening, they're talking to me on the radio. I'm helping them through the checklist, making sure that we get all the steps done uh, correctly. And then in addition to that, I was also coordinating with the, uh, with the KOC, the Combined Air Operations Center, and let them know that Pyro and Bear were going to be late to their tasking. So uh, what ends up happening next is they decide, uh, we all kind of decide together that they're going to just land, and Bear is going to go to a 
different jet once uh, once they get on the ground. Pyro's going to stay in, in the same jet that he's in. They're just going to gas his jet up, fill it up, and then uh, they're going to launch out. Baron new jet, Pyro in the uh, in the same jet. So, uh, in you know being a, being the great flight lead that uh, that that Pyro was, Pyro wanted Bear to learn to land first since he had a a jet problem. So. Traditionally speaking, number one lands prior to number number two, but Pyro put Bear out out in front of them and let Bear land first. Now this is all about three thirty to four in the morning. And keep in mind, we're out in the eastern desert of of Jordan, and there is almost zero cultural lighting out there. And when I when I say cultural lighting, I mean lights on the uh, on the ground. Really, the only lights that are out there are some are just a few lights from from the base that we're flying out of. So super dark and very difficult to see anything when you are not wearing your night vision goggles. And of course for landing, we don't wear our night vision, uh, night vision goggles. So Pyro is basically flying, Pyro and Bear are basically flying completely uh, instrument flight rules uh, at this point as they, uh, as they bring the jets back and, and, and fly an ILS. So uh, Bear lands and uh, shortly after Bear lands, he taxis off the runway and he calls me sitting top three and he's like, "Hey, top three, uh, have you heard from? I think his call sign was I think their call sign at the time was Gambler One, uh, Gambler Four One Four Two. Have you heard from Gambler One?" And I said, "No, I haven't. What's up?" And yeah, I didn't think anything of it. And he said, "I don't see him behind me. I can't see his lights, and I can't I can't get a hold of him on the radio." And so immediately I'm like, yeah, that's kind of weird. Maybe he had an electrical system failure or something or radio failure. Uh, so I walk out of where I'm sitting top three and the building that I'm sitting top three and you can see out across the whole base and then see down the final approach course. And I don't see any, any jet lights. Additionally, I don't hear any jet noise. So I'm kind of going, all right, something Something like doesn't seem right here. Pyro should have landed like 60 seconds after Bear. He would have been about a mile and a half to two miles behind him uh, on landing. So we give it another like three to five minutes. And I'm outside like listening for jet noise. I'm I'm looking for lights. Bear's trying to call him on the radio. I'm trying to call him on the radio. Nothing. And about five minutes goes by and we decide like something's up something's uh, something's not good here so we activated the uh the aircraft mishap or aircraft crash uh checklist which uh, has a bunch of items that uh, that you kind of go through in chronological order to start uh to start narrowing down what what potentially could have happened uh you know not not with the not with the crash itself but just trying to figure out you know is he is he still airborne is he, where is he if he's not airborne? Did he land somewhere else? All of these different options. So we dig into this checklist and, you know, the, the next, the next 12 to 24 hours uh, of, of stuff that we are, that we're doing is just, you know, as we work through all of the data and start to start to piece things together and, and ultimately figure out that the pyro is, uh, is gone. Uh, just a really difficult time for, for the entire squadron. Yeah, I would say, and even, you know, the entire base and what was like different, I think about our deployment was that base was so small that, uh, I didn't realize this till after it happened, the guys who were, you know, cause we could get the three beers a day, 
and our little morale welfare tent, you know, their, their secondary duty or their additional duty was mortuary affairs. So, you know, the, the young airmen who are, you know, normally just serving uh, drinks and food and snacks in the morale tent, you know, all that went away for a short period while they had to handle like the mortuary affairs and deal with it. And it was such a, it's such a tight knit community. Our squadron was so tight. I do remember, um, you know, like for me, I, yeah, I went to bed right after the phone got cut off. Uh, and then about an hour later, Hyde woke me up again, being a night guy, you know, it was like a vampire when I opened up the door. Um, and he just said, Hey, there's a pilot meeting in 10 minutes in the pilot tent. Um, and walking to it, Motor Riley stopped me and said, Hey, we got to get their form eights. I have one of them. And that's all he said to me. And the form eights, everyone's check ride documentation. And I knew right then that there had been, there had been a mishap. But I remember we, we all sitting there in the tent for about 25 or 30 minutes. And I knew that there had been an accident based on what Motor had told me I needed to go do after the meeting. Um, and I was just going through my mind, you know, like who's here, who's not here. What was the schedule? Like who should be airborne right now? And, um, just the next couple of days were just incredibly difficult for the squadron. And I mean, and not just the next couple of days. I mean, you know, Pyro had such a impact on so many people and so full of life. Like, again, it was just crushing. Um, and I think I was trying to remember. I feel like we, we didn't fly for two or three days. Um, and I know Bear and Blitz, the squadron commander, went flying first, get Bear back into the air. And then yep. I, I flew that day as well, a night. I don't remember if anyone flew between us with triple. And it was like a, just an overcast deck. We didn't think we were going to do anything. I know we ended up employing weapons, which was a huge like morale boost because coming back uh, and having bombs off the jet, like you could see the maintainers, how they reacted to that because everyone was just – so down in the dumps. And I think that's a testament of, you know, living his legacy and continuing to live it. Cause he'd want us to keep moving on. I think it's what most aviators would want. Right. And you hit it with your dad, yeah, you know, um, I did want to mention, uh, pyros wings, the, the foundation there. So pyros wings.com, um, started by his, his family, you know, the goal is to help pyros legacy live on, Cause again, he was so full of life and had so much to give. Uh, but now they're trying to help young people who are interested in pursuing military aviation, help them with some of the barriers with scholarships and things like that. So it's a great uh, charity to donate to and support if you're interested in, uh, in that for those who are listening and that's pyroswings.com. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, Gosh, I remember it, you know, it's, it's like it was yesterday. I remember everything about, about that day and probably will, and you know, till the end of, end of time, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, you know, I, I kind of, before, before the day, before the event of that day occurred, you know, as a military guy and as an American, you know, you hear the word sacrifice a lot and like the ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice, and you're, you're kind of far removed from it because you don't really know, you don't have a firsthand experience yet of, of somebody close to you, like given, given their life for the defense of the country. And then, you know, it happens and, 
you know, it happened to me and, and you and all the rest of us in the gamblers. And it, it takes on a completely different meeting meaning when, when it becomes a firsthand experience and you, and you like hear that one of your bros gave his life uh, in defense of, of, of your country. And that's one of the guys that you were fighting with on a, uh, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, you, you, you just like start to hurt and mourn and, and like grieve for, you know, Pyro's wife, uh, Ashley and his parents and all that. And then, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that, the thing that like really like struck me and, and like really brought it home was, there were six of us that, you know, we carried, we carried, we carried Pyro's, uh, flag Drake casket into a C-130 to be flown up to, I think he was going to Ramstein first and then getting flown back, you know, uh, back and return to the USA and back to his, uh, back to his family. And, you know, doing that was just really, really difficult and really kind of really nailed, really drove home like what it, what it was that we were doing out there and what it actually meant for somebody to give the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah. I definitely guilty of the fact of what you take for granted. And then you also, you know, what, it, what, I mean, flying jets is, is a dangerous business. Um, I mean, the military is a dangerous business and then in the end, like it, no kidding can cost you your life. Um, which I don't know. I, that, that probably too is a, a turning point for me. Uh, and I guess truly grasping and understanding just how fast things can change, um, how difficult things can be. And, you know, ultimately now there, there's a family, there are friends that will have a void in their life forever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. so, uh, I, I don't want to end on like a, such a somber note. I would, you know, kind of like to say too, you know, like it, part of it was, you know, we still had a job to do and we had to get back to it. And I know Pyro, that's what he would, he would want and expect of us to do. And, you know, the squadron did, did exactly that and then come back and honor his legacy. Um, because like, I think the worst thing we could have done is not, not flown. Not that that would have even been an option, I don't think, but you know, always you could say, Hey, I'm not going to do it. Right. But, um, I think in the end, everyone deals with it differently and we all dealt with it differently, but coming together and relying on the team and each other was definitely an integral part of helping us all kind of get through it and get back to the mission and honoring his legacy. Yeah. I remember, I remember, you know, everybody had their, like you, like you said, everybody's got their own way of dealing with problems and, you know, we, we stood down, I think it was for about 48 hours from flying and then we got back, uh, got back to flying, uh, flying missions in Iraq and Syria. And, you know, I think everybody, we, we had several talks, you know, like as a squadron pilot meetings of, of, if you don't feel ready to fly, no harm, no foul. We'll just put somebody else on the line and somebody else will fly uh, for you. But, you know, I don't think that happened to anybody in the squadron, like all 24 or 25 of us we were ready to go the next day. Uh, you know, when, when we, when we got back in the air, ready to go, you know, continue flying and continue carrying on, uh, you know, Pyro's legacy and, uh, yeah, man, he was, uh, he was a great guy, larger than life kind of guy. And, uh, we, uh, we certainly do miss him, but, uh, 
you know, we're trying to carry on his legacy and, uh, and, and keep him, uh, keep him alive as, uh, as much as possible. Absolutely. Well, chaos again, I thank you for taking the time and joining me on the podcast. Fascinating, uh, story of, you know, getting into the air force and what you've done and what you're doing today. Uh, thanks for the time and, and sharing that with me and everyone who's listening. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Awesome. Cheers, brother. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. The question and answer session with chaos is up right now for everyone on patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast and Patreon against P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you're looking for additional content, swing over there. I'll be back next week with a bonus episode and we're talking about Air Force officer sessions and how to commission into the Air Force and how to join. Again, as we deal with this, I hope everyone keeps pushing forward, knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. We'll band together, we'll push forward, and we'll get through it all. And I'll do my insignificant part of just trying to bring you a few extra episodes and additional content out there. But until next week, don't bring a week.